Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is a joint episode because I missed the day before, so it's a July 13th and sorry, July 14th and 15th episode mix. Um, the reason is I'll kind of give you a backstory. Well, actually, how should I start this? Well, so today's topic will be about a company called Atlassian. Um, funny thing is, I thought I actually had an episode about Atlassian in the past because I thought I talked about the company a n- number of times, but I realized after doing some research that I didn't actually do any kind of write-up related to it, although I felt like I kind of had a pretty solid idea of what the company was. And so it, it on July um, 14th, I decided that I wanted to dig into the company um, in terms of in terms of specifically the shareholder letters. So the co-CEOs of the company, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farker, um, Far, sorry, Farquhar, they write a quarterly shareholder letter, very much like um, Daniel Ek does at Spotify. And the letters start from, I believe it's 2017. They have a 2015 letters that the founders write to the shareholders as part of their IPO S1. But I believe the tradition of the quarterly letter started in 2017, I think. And they've done it all the way um, until recently with Q3 of 2020. And so I started this exercise of just reading through all the letters. And as I was reading through it, I wanted to kind of um, refer back to the kind of business model and notes that I thought I had taken. Um, So I was trying to go through my OMD Ventures site and look for a document that would have talked about Atlassian in the past. Turns out I didn't have one. And so that got me thinking about maybe I should write one um, just to kind of get my initial thoughts and everything down on paper first. So... I can look back on it um, over time. And that's kind of how it ended up being a multi-day exercise um, because I guess I had a bit of an oversight in regards to how much I had actually shared and kind of written about the company. So today's conversation will be, or in, or episode will be more focused on Atlassian's um, culture and org structure. That's kind of what the intention was. Like that's why I started reading the shareholder letters um, because I wanted to learn more about the company, learn more about the company's culture and the various kind of experiments I might be doing um, and the systems I might be running. Like that was the intention behind it. I was hoping I'd find something useful and I'll kind of share about what I found as a result. But I also realized that I've actually never talked about the company um, in, I guess, at least like a high level detail what the business does, etc. So I thought it's probably still a good ex- exercise for me to have kind of gone through the annual report, um, proxy statements, etc. just to kind of give an overview of what the business does and yeah it was also a good opportunity for me to kind of answer a couple questions I had and just kind of go through my thinking on how to think about a company like this what would I be curious about um, and just having some high level learnings kind of how most of my first look research tends to go so once again I'm not going into the key stuff 
the entire entire report i think comes out to something like 17 pages um it's not really that long i think even as i read it, i realized it felt shorter um it's because there's a lot of graphs and charts that i incorporate from various sources um the entire report can be found on omdventures.com so definitely check it out and it should provide more color to the stuff i talk about, in addition to the stuff i talk about today but to start off at Lazian, the ticker symbol is team it's a company on a mission to unleash the potential of every team. So that's kind of a, for me, as you know, that I, this entire podcast is about investing in people and my fascination with that. So this was kind of a no brainer for me, especially given the mission of the company and the kind of brief, really brief history is that the company was founded in 2002 by the two co-founders and co-CEOs, Mike and Scott, and it was founded in Sydney, Australia. And my fascination of the company is really rooted in these kinds of weird factors. I actually used Atlassian, which is a company. I didn't use Atlassian exactly. So Atlassian isn't a singular product. Atlassian is a company that makes a whole suite of products that helps achieve the mission of unleashing the potential of every team. And it started with its first product, Jira, um, which I'd say at a very high level, it's like a project management tool. So if you've used Basecamp, Asana, um, I don't know, like Monday.com, those are like very popular ones. Um, those will kind of give you insight into what Jira kind of is like. Kind of helps every team manage their workflow. Um, it was mainly dedicated towards software engineers because it kind of came up from a problem that both Mike and Scott experienced and they wanted to create a product that addressed that. And it's tackling this whole kind of developer operations, DevOps uh, ecosystem. So Jira, Jira is the main product of, of Atlassian, but they have all these other ones. The second biggest one, I believe, is Confluence. They also have Trello, Trello, which you're familiar with if you've ever tried to use a Kanban board, at least a digital one, and not use a, a janky one but you make out of Post-it paper before. But um, yeah, they have a bunch of other various products that are part of the suite. But Jira and Confluence make up about two-thirds of the total revenue of the company, and that's what they're really mainly known for in the ecosystem. That's the, that's at least how I knew them. I started using Jira and Confluence back in my consulting days, and I didn't really know anything about the company, and I didn't really care for it back then. I think the most fascinating thing for me was, because I, I didn't even think about DevOps as even an area. I wasn't very familiar with the developer ecosystem, just given my business background. And... When I used Jira and Confluent, my biggest, I think, in point of interest was that this was a brand new software that you know a large bureaucratic consulting firm was adopting. And usually, for some for a software to kind of get past the bureaucracy and get deployed by hundreds of consultants to use, it has to uh, have some kind of merit. It has to be something so obvious that consulting firms who are very risk averse will actually want to adopt. And this was a company I'd never heard about before. So this is quite unique because I'm pretty much more used to the typical Microsoft suite, Skype, uh, ERP systems that we work with are usually, you know, Oracle, SAP, and Workday was considered new and quote unquote innovative. So you, you kind of get the world I was coming from. And so that got me a little excited. I started having these kind of ERP bells ringing in my head when I was learning about Atlassian. And when I looked a little deeper into the company, I realized that it was actually based in Australia. And once again, the company, first of all, it, for a big software company to be based out in Australia, was very unique. Uh, usually you expect it to, become, to be from Silicon Valley. And the co-founders 
were actually co-CEOs, which for me was also once again unique. And the company did not have a sales organization. This is kind of this, you know, the weird shit that I live off of. Now, obviously, there's a big regret for me where I I worked with Jira and this my first inkling with the company happened in 2016. And so if I was a shareholder back then, then I definitely would have been much happier. Uh, but lo and behold, that was not the case. I am currently a shareholder of Atlassian, but it has it happened much later. And yeah, so the company is definitely unique in... Um, how it's structured, how it kind of was founded. And I think a couple points that I want to share that I came across in, from like listening to all these kind of interviews, and this is just kind of off memory off the top of my head because, like I said, I thought I had recorded all this stuff down in a past report, but I didn't. So I'm just kind of going off of all this past memory that I have from researching the company in the past. And so just big highlights. Uh, one is that, you know, the founding story of how Mike and Scott started the company, like they... This, you know, they had all these co-op terms before, which are kind of like internships, if you don't know, in the U.S., but in Canada, co-op terms is quite common, um, where you work while you go to school. And they both kind of concluded that they didn't want to have a job where you would have to report to someone, wear suits and ties, and they so decided to just go off on their own and start a company. And the unique thing with Atlassian is that the founders, because they bootstrapped a company in, in the beginning, they always focused on having cash flow. So I believe Atlassian was positive cash flow from year one of its founding, which was now when I look at it 18 years ago. So that I think is definitely unique uh, when you consider these kind of fast growing SaaS companies. Many start off just with venture funding and they're not profitable from the get-go, but Atlassian was. And something else that I thought was very unique is just how the founders constantly just focus on transparency and in one way, it's just simplicity and honesty. One example is how like when they got VC funding, they didn't really care for the brand name or the money so as so much because they were already generating a ton of free cash flow, but they wanted someone that could help scale the business. And so when they went to Silicon Valley in search of a VC to help build the business to new heights, they created like I think a shared data room where they would provide all the same material to all the VCs. There would be no backdoor dealings, and any question a VC asked uh, would be addressed in the shared document. And apparently, that infuriated a number of VCs who didn't like that. They like having the secrecy and the I guess advantage, the informational advantage in many cases, which I guess is why people like private deals and private equity. But the founders didn't want to do that. And so they made a level playing field, which I thought was quite unique uh, for them to actually be taking control of the situation and not be swayed in by what the VCs want. And something else they did is when they wanted to actually get a deal, um, they required all the VCs to provide a one-page term sheet. They would not uh, sign or accept any deal that wasn't a one-pager. And apparently Excel, um, is it called Excel Partners? I think that's the name of the fund. Uh, led by Rich Wong. I just remember the venture capital partner's name. Rich Wong was the one, apparently, was the only one who would com- condense everything into one page and provide it to the co-founders. And that's who it, they ended up partnering up with. And once again, I found that just to be, just reminding me a little bit, bit about how like Buffett does deals, where he does, he, you know, does handshake agreements, one-page ter- agreements when he buys companies, just focusing on the simple stuff, um, no legal bullshit, just honest and that I think continue to portray this point of view that these founders were very down to earth kind of people and like more examples of stories and anecdotes like apparently 
Mike, although he's a billionaire, I think he's worth like $11 billion now. Um, apparently, he still takes the bus to work. I don't know if he still does that, but I think when I heard that, that was a pretty uh, unique thing to hear from a founder. And apparently, for example, for Scott, like he he might splurge on, on occasion by getting like the premium tier for Uber, but that's it. Like I think he usually takes public transit or kind of the basic form of Uber as well. So they're just very down-to-earth people despite being billionaires, which for me is something I really like. So I'll just kind of go over some high-level stuff. Um, before I go into the shareholder letters, uh, one thing I love lo- looking into are the proxy statements. Um, they, file, they file a 20F for Atlassian because they're a uh, non-US domicile company that is actually listed listed on a US exchange. So they don't file a 10K, which is more common. Um, so usually most companies that are US domiciled and they list on the US exchange, they'll have a 10K and a proxy statement. But when you file a 20F, which is similar to what Spotify does as well, you end up combining the proxy statement with the annual report. So for me, I couldn't really pick and choose and they're having to look at the entire thing. But I usually tend to just go straight to the table of contents and find the ownership structure because I don't really... Like, I think I lose all interest in the company if I know, if I learn that the CEO or the people running it um, have no material interest in the business because it makes me think, then why would I ever want to invest in them um, if they don't have a material interest there? So when I look at, um, so I have all these charts and stuff in the report, like always, but at the most high level, they have a dual share structure, class A, class B, quite common, like most tech companies. And the particular thing here is that if we converted all of Mike and Scott's class B shares, which I think like they have complete control of it, they own 99% of the class B shares, which are the multi voting shares, which gives them a 90% voting control of the company currently. But if we, let's say, converted all the class B into class A, which is theoretically how you want the founders to actually generate wealth, or actually realize their wealth, then they would actually have 50% of all the outstanding shares of Atlassian. So from that aspect, I definitely do see a lot of alignment there. But once again, there's also cases where the founders don't want to sell off any of their Class B shares, so they just they just maintain control, but they want a piece of realizing the wealth. So then they'll issue themselves pretty outrageous stock options, which I think is quite a cardinal sin. Um, it just makes it very slimy and sketchy in my opinion, but... These founders do not do that. They do exactly what uh, I admired about the Google founders, which is they sell off portions of their Class B shares. So over the last, I believe, four four years or so, or five years, um, they both sold off 7% of their Class B shares to realize part of the wealth that they generated, which I think is awesome. And the fact that they did that, I think, showed a lot of class um, in how they think about equity and thinking about ownership for the company. And in relation to compensation, um, yeah, they don't do anything funny. They just pay themselves a salary, which I thought was completely reasonable. And I think each get paid around $300,000 annually. But apparently as of next year, I think 2020 2020 fiscal year, they will be um, getting paid. I believe it's 75,000 Australian dollars. And that I think is just quite just kind of, it's like a customary gesture kind of thing because apparently that's the minimum that has to be paid in Australia. So it reminds me of something similar to what the Google founders would uh, did when they just pay themselves $1 um, in payments. So 
nothing crazy there. Uh, things I look quite favorably towards, I think, on equity compensation, not, not much detail is shared, unfortunately. I just know that the cash compensation for the entire executive team, so five additional C-suite members, include, uh, excluding the co-founders, they collectively all got paid $4 million, which means each exec kind of get paid like $700,000 a year, which I think was quite reasonable. But there isn't anything else shared on the equity comp, which I think is a very important thing, which is quite unfortunate. Um, but I'll kind of have to be wary of that, and maybe they'll share more information on that in the future. I think overall, though, on the executive team, um, I'm kind of mixed here because I like seeing executive teams that have a lot of depth in terms of experience inside the company, so a lot of like long tenure. And I think only one individual, Jay Simons, who's the president, who's practically in charge of, I'd say, the sales and revenue side of the business, has been there for a long time. Like He's been with the team since 2008, I believe, but he's actually going to uh, he actually left the company, I believe, in 2020s, which is quite unfortunate. And I see that as a bit of a negative to lose your longest standing non-founding executive um, in the company. And he's, But he's, he'll be replaced by an internal promotion um, to create their own new chief revenue officer, which is a positive sign. I like seeing new positions being filled up from, an in, from internally instead of going out to find people, which is not the case for their chief people officer role and their CFO role. Um, from reviewing the all the shareholder letters, the chief people officer has been role has been changed twice in the last four years, and that's the same um, for the CFO role as well. So, yeah, so there's been two different people um, throughout the four-year period, which is quite quick, I think. I think the CFO role, tent, it did happen kind of at an odd spot. I think where the previous CFO, I think Murray Demo, was just part of it for the IPO to help Atlassian prepare for that. And then I guess he kind of hit that point where he wanted to step down and they've brought in someone else called James Beer, who's the current CFO. Both externally, um, yeah, they, they both came from external. It wasn't like an internally developed, promoted hire. And I find that's actually more common I guess, as I look at more companies, um, CFOs tend to also leave quite often, I think. They kind of do like a four to six year stint on many cases. And I guess that is kind of more the average and it's not something to look upon so negatively in the company at, but it's still not a positive. Um, so that was something that did bother me. Um, the chief of legal was promoted internally, although she only joined in 2016. So I'm still looking at a pretty quote unquote green, like young executive team, like the CTO joined in 2016, um, the chief of staff, I believe joined in 2016 time period, this new C CFO, James Beer, I believe took over 2017, 18, I forget. Uh, but still, it's still a relatively young executive team, which I'm not too big of a fan of. I like seeing um, more continuity, especially when the company has had a long history. I mean, 18 years is a long time. And so you'd expect them to have had enough uh, internal candidates developed to take on these leadership positions. So the lack thereof, I think, isn't really positive for me personally. Okay, so I'll kind of dive into the quarterly shareholder letters. So the way I thought about um, sharing this, I, I was actually influenced by the book I recently finished reading called Dear Shareholder by Lawrence Cunningham. So I thank you, Mr. Cunningham, for this inspiration. Um, the way he went through shareholder letters in his book, so the entire book's about going through shareholder letters and sharing the best ones that he picked out. And 
um, the way he does it is like he kind of does a bit of a chronologic, semi-chronological, uh, I guess, divvying up of various content, but at the same time using various themes to also combine materials together. So that's kind of what I did. So there were, I think overall, from all the letters, they all follow a very similar structure, very similar to the, the Spotify letters uh, that I m- might have mentioned before. They start with the, fa- the co-founders talking about the company, and generally those parts are very product-driven. Um, doesn't actually talk much about the organization, which I was very disappointed by. I really was hoping to learn more about the culture of the company that way, especially because the co-founders are very... They commonly talk about how people are their greatest asset. So I expected them to talk more about their people, which was not the case, very disappointingly. But what they end up talking about more so is the product and how it works with the customer. So you do get the sense that they're very product-focused and very customer-focused, given what they discuss. And then the letter goes into part two, which is usually taken over by Jay Simons, which I believe will be taken over by the new um, chief revenue officer. I'm blanking on his name, but... They always have a customer segment where they actually go through case studies of various customers that use Atlassian's products. And I think those are pretty helpful if you don't know what the company does and it gives you an idea of where it could be applied. And then it ends with the financial metrics, which is gone over by the CFO. And it's always the same metrics. They go over management, um, usually highlights revenue, the gross and operating margins, net income per share diluted, balance sheet health, kind of like looking at the net cash position, and then free cash flow. And... One thing there that I think bugs me is that they give a quarterly guidance. Um, they kind of give future guidance, which I guess it it's easier for them because it the product tends to be very recurring in nature because of a lot of subscription and maintenance revenue. But I just don't like companies that give guidance. It, I think, incentivizes the wrong behavior. So I don't know. I just felt, I always feel like when you give a quarterly guidance, it's very kind of somewhat um, hypocritical to a long-term mindset. So that's something I wanted to note from that. Um, Atlassian has done a lot of M&As in the past. I think the most notable one would be Trello. Uh, it's been like a big part of their operation. And I guess Ops Genie, which has been a huge help, I think, as part of the IT service desk side, like Jira service desk, for example. And the constant theme there is that they sh- the co-founders have been very consistent in sharing the same message. And I covered this or kind of um, confirmed this in the... I guess, earnings transcripts that the co-founders also do as well. And it seems that when they do M&As, they kind of look at these very three particular things. They look at business model alignment, product alignment, and culture alignment. And culture is something that they continuously talk about. And I kind of share a tidbit that they share about when they acquired Trello and how culture alignment was such a huge, important thing there. And in regards to the the culture of Atlassian, which is something I really want to focus on in the shareholder letters, they do mention it in various parts, um, and I kind of incorporate various quotes with it, but they do mention it in the like 2017 letter, 2018 letter, I think in the 2020 letter as well. Um, like They share practices like how they have a whole collection of bobbleheads for people who've been in the company for 10 plus years, and I think that definitely highlights something very positive, um, where you are kind of, I guess, incentivizing some kind of award for staying with the company for a very long time and i think a lot of the culture stuff is kind of constantly 
intertwined with the product. They constantly talk about how the company focuses on being open and being transparent and constantly removing barriers for teams. And they relay that with the product and how the Aladdin suite of products operates and what they hope to achieve for the customers as well. So there's always that kind of dual angle all the time. Um, like they constantly focus on having a open company uh, where everything's transparent, everyone's aware of everything and how that kind of comes down to the core fact of the um, product itself. I think something unique that they incorporate that I don't think many companies do is, especially during the time of COVID, for example, they included how um, they've been talking with their employees and surveying them to see like, are they doing a good job or are they not? And apparently 95% of their employees believe that the acting and communication was clear and 85% say they feel supported and connected to their team. So sharing that kind of survey, I thought was um, at least one other indication that they're constantly thinking about their culture and how they can continue to communicate with their people. Like many, com- most companies, I don't think shared any of that of what's actually happening internally. Um, what else? Another part is kind of the focused side of management. Um, it's, it relates to like how they kind of admit mistakes and stuff. And one particular thing is how they kind of admit that, yeah, like they had these products called Stride and HipChat, which are kind of, I guess, um, communication tools that, are, that do compete with Slack and like the Microsoft Teams. And they, I think in 2018, they had in their letters talking, they were talking about how, yeah, like these products didn't work out and they're actually going to sell them off. And they ended up actually selling it to Slack. And so they have a kind of partnership there, which is also a continuous theme. They seem to find a way to just focus on their niche of, I guess, um, software for teamwork and continuously seek out to partner with other providers of other various uh, software products. Like they've partnered up with Envision for Envision is a product, a software for designers. They've partnered up with Zoom for video communication. They've partnered up with Slack for work communication. So they're constantly integrating all this stuff into their products. And it makes me think about a potential unique joint approach where now could, could the future be instead of having one software company, like for example, Microsoft that just runs everything, that you actually have a band of some you know five to 10 pretty decently sized mid to large sized companies that actually just hold hands together and work together to dominate an entire uh, industry called quote-unquote work that could be pretty interesting and I thought also something this might be lame but was interesting is how with Atlassian and Slack partnering if you look at their ticker Atlassian's ticker's team and Slack's ticker's work so it becomes teamwork and I just thought that was kind of ironic that when these two companies end up partnering you spell teamwork with their ticker symbols um, some other parts I'd say how I built out the um, share all the letters I think another big theme is the long-term vision um, starting with the IPO letter all it every year I think they have a constant theme about emphasizing the long term they're investing for the long term and I think some indications show like how they mentioned in the 2019 letter about how they started investing in cloud in 2007 and how they kind of went through this whole 12-year journey of transitioning and moving all their products from on-premise to the cloud and how that is now kind of paying off dividends and the constant iterations they've had to had 
um, also just kind of, the, I think their IPO letter talks about the journey of how they achieved their 10, like over a 10 year period or so, they eventually got 50,000 customers, but that was a long-term goal that they set early in the company. And they continuously focused on building that and getting that even without having a sales organization, because they also had a core belief that they, that software should be bought, not sold. And that's kind of this whole organic adoption model that I think makes the company extremely unique as well. Um, let's see what else. Yeah, I'm not just I'm not gonna share much of the quotes because because that's kind of really shared in depth um, in the letters and also just kind of all the stuff I pulled out into my research paper, uh, research, I guess notes essay as well. Another theme that's shared is their competitive advantage. Um, they actually had one particular letter. I think it was the most recent or the 2000, the 2020 Q2 letter. I forget. Um, but they have a beautiful segment that kind of focuses on what they believe their competitive advantages to be. And so that's something I included. Overall, though, they over time, they've kind of mentioned that they believe that their competitive advantage is really um, in their culture, their business model, and their products. And that's kind of the theme that I think continuously gets played throughout. Um the business model really is this kind of efficient slash organic go-to-market model, which once again has no sales team and you're completely relying on people loving your product so much that they adopt it, they adopt it for their team, and then it slowly kind of expands um, slowly but rapidly inside an organization. Kind of like, not to put it in a negative way, but like how a virus expands, like it starts with a small node and then it just expands rapidly throughout the body. Um I think that's kind of the model that Atlassian is trying to incorporate with this whole bottom-up uh, distribution model. And they continuously make reference to how they have a very innovation R&D-focused culture. And that really is, I guess, supported by the fact that they don't spend any money on sales and marketing, or they do, but not as much as any SaaS company ever would. And all of that's redistributed into their R&D team. So that actually becomes where most of Atlassian's money is spent. Now, if they spent, if a company spent most of their money in sales and marketing, and if they told you, yeah, we have a sales-focused culture, that would make sense. But if that kind of company said they had a product-focused culture, mm, well, we would say that that doesn't seem to be the case anymore, right? So they really are kind of putting where the money where the mouth is in that perspective. And let's see. So now I'll just kind of move over to the high-level stuff of what I pulled out from the annual report. Um, just kind of putting it all out there right now. Like This is not... An investment uh, review or report really it's more like I do invest but once again I just like to talk about companies and learn about them and think about questions that I do have always with like an investor's lens but it's never an investment recommendation and it's never supposed to be very fully exhaustive either um, I do a lot of research and work in the back end that I don't actually end up uh, I guess incorporating into this research um, this is all stuff I learn over a day or two and then I spend the rest of I'd say you know weeks and months constantly thinking about the businesses unconsciously and the back of my mind and even when I look at new companies I'll constantly be going back and forth and trying to answer specific questions that I might not share here so just keep that in mind um, because this is not supposed to be the be all end all it's just a fun thing to look at and learn about a new company always with like a people lens so the I think the couple of unique things about the annual report um one is that they share a lot about the culture of the company, um, specifically through the core values that they have. And the five core values, which I think are quite distinct, and they don't have a, uh, what do you say, 
legal slash PC, you know, politically correct lingo to it. So the five core values that they decided, one is open company, no bullshit. And they have a big picture of a bull with an X on it. The second is play as a team. Third is build with heart and balance. Four is be the change you seek. And five is don't fuck the customer. They don't say fuck, but I'm imagining they said fuck with all these weird symbols that you commonly use for a swear word. And for me, this kind of shows how this, once again, the ethos of the business, they don't really care about being correct or kind of following what other people do. I think it's kind of proven with how weird the business is with the fact that they don't have a sales organization, the fact that they always focus on being cash positive from the get-go. Yeah. And I think they also did incorporate, they also do have had, they've had remote teams before. Um, I think that was also one thing that made me very interested in it, Latin in the past as well, because even before COVID, they've had remote working as kind of a norm. It's not, they weren't a remote first company, but I know they've had teams that were purely remote as well. So I think overall, though, uh, once again, a big theme that's shared um, in the annual, annual report when they talk about the Atlassian way, their business uh, strategy is how the products are kind of like uh, a reflection of the culture that they have. So a big thing is openness and transparency in the culture of Atlassian. And the co-founders talk about how their the way they sell their product is a reflection of that because they, all the prices are kind of out there. There is no separate um, hidden discounts, hidden kind of deals that separate companies get over others. Um, everything, all the sales actually happens on their website. People come to the website and they end up just buying the products that they want and they upgrade when they need to. But all of it's transparently available. And whether it's the you know deals that they did with the VCs back then or the products that they sell, it seems like there's a constant focus on transparency. And what else? Oh, it's just a fun fact. So the Atlassian name comes from the Greek Titan Atlas. So if you're not familiar, Atlas was the Greek Titan who was quote unquote kind of burdened uh, with the duty of holding the sky up. So the Greeks believe that somebody was holding the sky and the stars up in the heavens. And that was the job of Atlassian, uh, Atlas who had the world on his shoulders, so to speak. And that apparently relates to um, the company's goal of providing a legendary kind, legendary service to their customers, um, just like how Atlas provided a legendary service to the people of the world who lived below. So I thought that was pretty cool. It just continuously talks to the theme of this very customer-focused uh, nature of the company. And let's see... I'll just kind of briefly talk about competition because I I think that's something I struggled with and I still am not too sure about. Like, who does Atlassian really compete with? And I think on the highest level, it's just really the big, um, I guess, workplace software companies like Microsoft and IBM. And I think Salesforce kind of gets in there too. And they have a lot of smaller competitors like Asana, Monday.com, PagerDuty, um, even like Basecamp, I'd say. And so they compete with a lot of different players and I included um, this kind of magic formula graph or magic quadrant graph that um, Gartner that uh, publishes every year. I think I've seen this before in the past and they list a number of big players here um, who work on project management software and Atlassian is kind of at the top quadrant as a leader in the segment. Now I don't really know what the metrics that they use for it are, but I think the biggest competitor when I think, when I look at um 
the usage of software similar to like Jira would be Microsoft. So according to, I believe it was N- nlift.com, um, I was curious on, well, if because Atlassian generates two thirds of their revenue from Jira and Confluence, we should look at what are the direct competitors of that product. And it seems like Jira seems to be number one in the software configuration management uh, market in just terms of, I guess, the number of companies that use it. Um, that's And these are not exact accurate numbers. It just kind of gives you an idea. But the big competitors are kind of GitHub, which is owned by Microsoft, as well as um, the Microsoft Visual Studios. And they, I think, make up something like 25% of the market and Jira makes up like 35% of the market. Um, I don't know how accurate these are, but it kind of gives you an idea that it's it seems to be like kind of a big two-player market between Jira and Microsoft. Same for Confluence. Um, Confluence is... Usually, I think most people use Confluence and Jira together because Confluence kind of has all the reference material and all the archiving of notes and stuff and all the tickets get executed in Jira. So... I think most companies tend to use it together in tandem, but it was interesting to see from the same site that Confluence had a much lower market share um, of only like 2%, whereas Microsoft Visual Studio had 20% uh, in the market. So that was quite interesting. Um, But it seems like that is the case where Microsoft is kind of Goliath in this field, as you'd expect from a trillion market cap company um, that deals with everything related to the nature of work. And it would be a company like Atlassian that would be trying to compete with the big dog. And then there's also all these other smaller companies that I'm more familiar with um, that tend to do pretty decently as well in the SMB space and startup space. But overall, when I think about the customers, um, I believe Atlassian has about 150,000 customers with about 10 to 13 million uh, monthly active users. And the way that management's communicated their TAM, the total addressable market, I think is quite unique. Most big enterprise software companies Usually say they're targeting the Fortune 500 or the Global 2000. I've heard of those two quite often, but Atlassian is the only company that's talked about the Fortune 500,000. Now that might just be marketing because they just want to tell investors and everyone that, look, we can target everyone. And they even go a little further to say that we want to target the global 800 million knowledge workers out there. But the way that management talks about TAM is they don't constantly refer to it as uh dollar amounts they constantly refer to TAM as the number of users which I found to be uh, interesting I don't know if I'm reading too into it but I think that might be a more accurate way of looking at the TAM um, because you don't know how much each user will use like if you generally most software companies probably you know ideally want to improve their ARPU their average revenue per user but I think when you have one user um, who fanatically loves your product for a company like Atlassian that continues to produce more products to work in tandem with the suite you want them to adopt more of the products that are integrated with your whole ecosystem so then you just want to focus on acquiring these individual knowledge workers so that when they love using Jira then they'll use Confluence and they'll use Ops Genie they'll use Jira Service Desk they'll use Trello etc and just continuously go down that whole um, chain and I guess that's kind of like bundling everything but yeah so I think that's one way to look at the TAM. Um, specifically, though, because Atlassian still focuses mainly on, I'd say, the IT teams and the software teams, um, that limits their, I guess, more so closer niche market to like 100 million users who are quote-unquote, I say, cl- cl- classified as technical professionals. But And I think that is 
the um, criticism that Atlassian tends to get from other investors or just other business analysts that, yeah, like they are fast growing, you know, they've been growing at some 40% clip annually for quite a while now. And people say, well, but their time is so limited. They can only target software developers and IT professionals. And I don't know if it's just me, but, or any kind of person that's bullish on Atlassian in that I just feel that in the future, wouldn't most people be technical? Like the idea to separate non-technical and technical only exists now in this current point in our time because we're just going through this radical shift. Like it's only when I was in university that being a software engineer was cool. Like I, even when I was in high school, nobody I knew wanted to be a software engineer because um, the idea of the dot-com crash was so severe. Like I, I was told by my parents not to be a software engineer because it was such a in, insecure job and you would lose value very quickly. Little did they know that the world would be eating software. But once again, we just cannot predict that. And so that makes me think about the future and where how wouldn't everybody know how to code in the future? Like, wouldn't every kid uh, grow up learning how to write code? So then wouldn't every person be technical in some nature? Like, in, in one aspect, maybe the dissection isn't to say, oh, well, this company only targets technical people, but the fact that, well, maybe in the future we'll start categorizing people differently instead of tech or non-tech. It'll just be, are you a product person or a non-product person? Because eventually every company will succeed by doubling down on their product team um, because products are what generate customers. And nowadays all that's kind of interrelated, like, you know, marketing is kind of called growth in many companies now. Now all this um, terminology might sound weird and it, kind of unfitting and kind of to um marketing you know you know what i mean um just for so people can feel special about what they do but at the same time it could actually translate to how what if the nature of work is changing where you just have this kind of whole product quote-unquote team and that is made up of product managers who work with growth teams who practically do what marketing people used to do but now it's much more data-driven and um you have engineers who work with um, everyone else accordingly and you have designers who you know even the idea of a UX designer UI, UI designer just that job didn't exist really even like 10 years ago like people can't even really learn about it in universities because most universities don't have programs about user interface or user experience design um, these are also nascent terms that are constantly developing so it just makes me think that what we segregate as TAM now might not actually be very accurate for um, these kinds of companies. And what might actually be really accurate is at Atlassian's point of view that, no, we're just going to target knowledge workers because every knowledge worker uh, will probably want to go into the product space because, I mean, that's where the company's growth will come from, right? So that's just kind of a point of view that I had. Um, and yeah, they have all, I have all these graphs where it gives you an idea of the kind of customer mix, but most of the time, or most of Atlassian's customers, I'd say, are these small businesses. Um, they only have, what is it, just over some, like 100 plus companies that pay them $500,000 plus uh, in revenue. So they, I'd say most of their customers tend to be more, more smaller companies, um, like SMB types. And that also means that they don't really have a revenue concentration, which is, I think, the key point to take away is that no, no single customer accounts for more than 1% of their total revenue.
And so how do they make money? Um, the big thing I think to take away here is that about 85% of their total revenue is quote-unquote recurring in nature. So they are a form of subscription slash maintenance revenue. Subscription is mainly tied to the cloud uh, products that they sell, which tends to be what new customers now gravitate towards. But when they first started, they just sold uh, licenses in perpetuity and they made maintenance revenue on top of the licenses that they sold. And so that also is kind of the... Uh, recurring component as well but over time i think the unique thing or something i learned that i didn't know before from studying atlassian is how the economics of cloud-based software compared to on-prem software is just much more powerful over time so on-prem software will make a lot of revenue near term because you sell the license upfront, which is a lot of money and there's a lot of maintenance that also continues to happen but over time the um I guess the way you sell cloud-based subscriptions, which are most more based on like usage over time, will result in a higher revenue as people continue to use the software more. Um, and so then I think the graph that they show is that by something like year five or something, um, cloud revenues end up exceeding maintenance revenues um, over time on kind of like a cumulative revenue-recognized basis. So I thought that was pretty interesting um, in terms of the unit economics. And that might actually show how... In the near term, you might actually see ARPU go down um, because you don't have all these upfront license revenues coming in as people just continuously just pay for lower cost uh, subscription revenue. But then over time, that'll continuously increase over time. So that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, Something else to note is how I think periodically throughout the shareholder letters, there is constant mention of introducing more price discounts, adding more free trials and that could result in ARPU continuously going down. I think one source I include in the report said Atlassian's ARPU is kind of at around like $120 um, in a year. And some people might look at ARPU going down as a very negative thing. But in my opinion, for Atlassian's model to work, you would actually want ARPU to, in essence, go down, right? Because you want as many users as possible. Like I could, if I were to think about... And I think this is a pretty difficult talk, difficult question that I still don't have an answer that I'm confident with because, um, you know, the amount of I know about software businesses is quite minimal. Um, but is, you know, what is the most important thing with Atlassian? Is it because sales growth is just a result of this important thing happening? So then, what is that? And it makes I think that the most important thing is the growth of customers um, and specifically understanding the growth of small customers that might have started out, you know, in a 10, 20 team and the evolution, like how many of those customers actually evolve and become this uh, more second tier customer that pays $50,000 a year to become a first tier customer that pays $500,000 a year. Like how much of that happens? Because I think a lot of Atlassian's distribution model working out and the strength of his product working out relies on this organic expansion. Um, first, it's adopted internally in a bottom-up manner by a couple of software engineers who really like it. They become fanatical. They go to the Atlassian Summit that they host every year and they share it with their team. So then, you know, the software is useless unless a team adopts it, right? Because the whole point is for better communication in the team and better workflow. So the big question is, well, does that expand? Does that just die in a team like it doesn't matter if for example airbnb or netflix uses atlassian if only if only one team in that entire company uses it the question is 
once it's adopted by one team in Netflix, how does that grow? How long does it grow over time? Um, I think that's a big question. And the more I think clarity I can get into that customer data, I think that'd be the biggest, um, the most important thing. Um, and I think right now the proxy is like, yeah, just seeing customer growth, but it would be best to kind of get an indication of, yeah, like for a customer that currently helps you generate like maybe $2 million in sales, what was that um, time period like? Did it require 10 years for it to continuously hit that number? I think they share a couple, a few examples in their um, presentation from 2019, but there's nothing in depth about it in the annual report or the shareholder letters, which is unfortunate, but I think that's the big thing I'd be curious on. Um, I'll just kind of end this off with my kind of two cents on valuation. It's all, I think that's always like a big question, but once again, I think the way I summed it up, if I were to summarize valuation in one word, it would be a question mark um, because I'm, I think it's a topic I, have, I continuously get more and more confused with. Um, and it might be the type, type of companies I look at and the kind of space I'm trying to play at in nature where I'm trying to constantly find companies with great founders, great management teams, and great organization structures. Um, and so that might make it a little challenging because a lot of them tend to be in software type companies and I do want the business to be continuously growing. So it kind of, I might be swimming um, upstream with all these high valuations that these companies tend to be getting, which I think some are warranted and some are actually also still undervalued, but I digress. So I'll kind of go into how I thought about Atlassian. Um, in a very simple note, I when I did a extremely simple back of the envelope calculation, not even a calculation, just kind of a look look through at it, I kind of came up with like a two to three percent uh, yield on owner earnings, so kind of my IRR. And so, you know, what what does that mean? Well, the IRR alone um, shows me that well, they make about three percent yield on the current enterprise value of the business, which I assume that they're going to continuously reinvest into growing the company so at the lower end it's like okay well let's say you make about three percent in yield what is your organic growth that you should consider and i think that was also tricky because many software companies utilize a very intensive sales and marketing team to generate sales and is that organic or not um i don't know that that i think makes you go deeper down to the theory and topic of okay then what is organic sales is it um, just people just wanting to buy more of your product and wanting to spend more. And how much of that is influenced by sales and marketing? Um, does the use of sales and marketing dollars make that inorganic by nature? Is it similar to actually buying a company, like acquiring a company, which definitely is not organic growth at all because you got it by acquisition. But when you acquire users, that could also be inorganic. Well, so then what about a company like Atlassian that doesn't really have that kind of uh, sales organization that is focused on acquiring users. So then would a good chunk of their growth be organic if it relies on um, internal organic expansion? So I think that was quite, that kind of puts me at a very, uh, it makes me look at the company in a different way. And I think also the movement from the on-prem model to the cloud model over the last, let's say, 13 years since they started investing in cloud um, could actually result in, yeah, sales declining, uh, sales rates declining because the on-prem, once again, led to a lot of 
front loading of the sales because of the perpetual license sales. Um, and so then you could see slowdown in the sale growth, but you could actually potentially also have the consistency that everybody wants. Everybody wants the recurring nature. And so what that could mean is that you could have 20 years of 20% growth, which kind of reminds me of what Amazon really is. So that could also be something unique to think about where people might be expecting a company that grows 50% every, you know, for annually for the next five years. But what if this is a company that will eventually become one that grows 20% for 20 years, which is something I would prefer more of as someone who wants to hold a company for 10 years plus. And so, yeah, like I, I'm just been constantly trying to think about all this. Um, I didn't do a calculation on um, return on invested capital that I share here. Like I have my own kind of uh, metric on ROC, but didn't really include it here just because that's something I'm still, that'll need more time um, noodling around with, but it's still high. I'd say the return on invested uh, capital employee is definitely north of 40% for sure. Um, which usually for me, that combined with organic growth would be the kind of top line that you would expect. Um, kind of like how Constellation Software thinks about the, their own bands of return. So on the low end, at the very lowest, you're looking at like 3%, but you got to include organic growth, which I don't know. I, I, in one ways, I want to say, yeah, like that's definitely at least 10% um, because I think much of their growth so far has been organic. Um, even if you take out all the growth they had from acquisitions from these various uh, software businesses that they tack onto, I still think a, a good chunk of their, you know, let's say if they grew sales by 40%, I could still see at least half of it, maybe even 30% of it being organic in nature. Um, given how I think of their total revenue, 90% continuously comes from existing customers so yeah not sure but overall um i think the big question is could i see atlassian become a 450 billion dollar company i think it's enterprise level right now enterprise value right now um on the day of writing this report was like around the 40 billion dollar mark and yeah could it 10x in 10 years I, i think quite possibly um when compared to organizations like Microsoft and IBM that they're really competing with, I feel most aligned with the management team of Atlassian. Um, The other companies don't really have a management team that's aligned very well with shareholders, like not taking anything away from Satya Nadella, who's done an excellent job as a CEO. But um, I think the culture and the structure that Atlassian has is definitely more unique in that sense. So I think I'd rather be in taking part... uh, riding the ride with the challenger than the some than the goliath who's just afraid of losing their position so yeah it might not be satisfying because i didn't tell you you know this is a buy or anything but um once again this is not intended for investment advice anyways it's either just kind of how i think about companies and how i'm thinking about um the business itself and most of the times it's very inconclusive in nature because most of the times things i think about are quite inconclusive um, but I think the way I'd include it, conclude is this is very interesting. Um, I think it's a very unique company. I think they have a unique management team and it's one that I hope to delve deeper into in regards to the culture and org structure in the future. Uh, I'm constantly trying to find new material on it. Maybe I'll try to find more people to interview, uh, that actually work in the company. We'll see. But yeah, this was a bit of a long one, but I want to make up for missing out on the previous days, 
uh, podcast episode. So hope this was entertaining and hope this was interesting. Um, and yeah, once again, thanks for tuning in. Tell your friends about it if um, they might find it interesting. And yeah, hope to have you back on listening for future episodes in the future. So appreciate it and take care.